The most important thing in communication is to hear what isn't being said. Peter Drucker. Hi, welcome to A Million CVs. I'm your host, Delight Sergio. Our guest today is the advisory sector leader in New Zealand and the sustainability lead for the Asia-Pacific New Zealand and Australia region of Mott McDonald. Now, Mott McDonald is a management, engineering and development global consultancy. It's one of the world's largest employee-owned engineering consultancies and it's got over 18,000 staff across 150 countries. Warner Brunton, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So my, my, my first question to you is I'm a 20-year-old university student, mid-career, or maybe I'm in mid-career and in some other organization. What do I need to do to become a sustainability advisor like you are? Well, it's a good question. I think um, there may be two ways of answering this question. One would be to reflect on how, as a leader of people, I might give advice to somebody today. And the other way might be to think about how I progressed in my career. So if I think about how I progressed in my career, when it came to sustainability and that passion that I found in, in the work that I was doing as a building services engineer and having wanting to have a greater influence on the things that I did, there wasn't a lot of information around. Um, I was sort of talking 25 years ago. Um, certainly it was a, a burgeoning subject and everybody was concerned about the impact that we were having on the environment. But to really understand what we could do and the opportunities that we could take for leadership and sustainability, mm-hmm. we had to do a lot of research of our own. Right. And so I spent a lot of time just seeking out information, whether at conferences or, um, which there weren't many, being part of organizations that were promoting sustainability, uh, doing self-directed research and learning on the job. So I think there's, there's a lot to be said for somebody uh, when you start your career, not only to learn what you can on the job through your practice of working with your colleagues, but I think it's really important to invest in yourself as well. So find those opportunities outside your direct practice for the business that you're working in to educate yourself about what the pertinent issues are of the day or that particular practice area that you're concerned about when it comes to sustainability, because it's it's a pretty broad subject. So uh, yeah, I'd say don't just look at what your job is doing. Look at those opportunities that you can find for yourself to better yourself, to right. improve your knowledge. Right. Reading, listening to podcasts, yeah. watching documentaries, uh, attending conferences, uh, all those sorts of things are really, really important. So right. yeah, there's a couple of things there is invest in your own self right. and find that niche and that that subject matter area that is most important to you and invest invest your knowledge in that space. Okay. so So now you said 20 something years so given what you've just said could we then take a step back and look at your the early beginnings of your career what what were your aspirations and dreams did you always want to become a sustainability engineer did it happen accidentally was it something some event happened in your life and it became like okay i'm not going to do this again i'm going to switch to sustainability what what's the story there that's a really good question actually i mean i think when you leave university sometimes you're not quite sure what it is you're going to do with yourself. And even though I have a professional degree and a degree that could take me, I studied mechanical engineering. I wasn't certain when I left university what it is that I was going to do. And and I ended up working for an engineering consultancy in New Zealand. I was fortunate that it was in building consultancy. And I'd always had an interest, as many people who in, in, in this field do, had an interest in the built environment and uh, creating things and building things and seeing things come together. So I had the foundation foundations of an interest in design, problem solving, uh, working with clients, uh, working with colleagues, solving technical problems. So I had that part of it. But one of the things I found really early on was I became somewhat dissatisfied with the nature of what building services was then, which was an architect would give you plans Uh and say, fit your air conditioning system inside that box. 
And uh, one of the things about the nature of building design is that really uh, it is an integrated design process. And if you want to be effective, uh, you need to make sure that you're you are connecting things in an integrated way rather than an additive way. Right. So I thought about this for a while and uh, I happened to get a new mentor in my business, uh, a director, uh, a former director from another engineering consultancy who, who had developed a, a reputation in environmental sustainable design, as it was then, okay. ESD, and that opened up my eyes as a new opportunity to work in, in the built environment in a way which was more integrated, uh -huh. uh, more collaborative, more a partnership with clients and architects and stakeholders to design better buildings for people. So... I was starting to uh, find this interest, and I think if I had an, a, a bit of an epiphany, I started doing a lot of work for, in my early career, I started doing a lot of work in education projects. And one of the challenges with education projects is there's not a lot of money right. uh, to be for, for new schools. Yeah. But those buildings or those developments have longevity. Uh, so a school, that, a brand new school that I designed in uh, the early 2000s, you know, that's going to be around for 25, 50 years. And it occurred to me that the design decisions that we were making at that time uh, for those buildings yeah. were going to affect hundreds, if not thousands of people across the life cycle of yeah. that school's school's life. So uh, that's when I really had an epiphany that it was important to me and I had the opportunity to design and work with the design team to deliver spaces that were more comfortable, more firmly comfortable, visually comfortable, uh, lots of daylight, uh, lots of great indoor air quality, right. use of energy in a really effective way. Yeah. And so I embraced this notion of passive design, integrating integrated building services design, and of yeah. course, people calling that sustainable so, design. Yeah, so you're cutting across more or less like different disciplines. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Very multi multidisciplinary, uh, integrative design process, very collaborative. But of course, it was more than that. Uh, it was more than just building services design. It right. was about effective use of resources. So today we would talk about wellness yeah. and cultural uh, imperatives, uh, as well as the environmental and the economic, economic as aspects. So opportunities to work within sustainable building design was uh, one of those steps yeah. along the way early in my career journey that took me to being a more broadly looking sustainability right. consultant. And, and did you get any pushback? So like you said, this is something that was starting and there you were, you probably picked up the idea that, okay, I could run what we can best describe as positive intervention or positive interruption from the status quo where people are designing architecturally or looking at it in terms of engineering, did you get any pushback from people? Where yeah. you're going to tell them, okay, don't do this mechanically because it's not sustainable or it's not going to make the building better. Did you get any pushback? And this is for some young person trying to maybe start something new and they, they're thinking, okay, because I'm trying to start this new thing, people are saying, no, it cannot be done or it should not be done. So I probably need to take a step back. I don't need to proceed. Did you get any pushback in that, in that, in that space? Absolutely. Uh, you know, change is difficult, right? And yeah. when you try and present your clients and stakeholders with different ways of doing things uh, that are not familiar to them, they always push back. And of course, when it comes to thinking, taking that long-term view on sustainability, it doesn't matter whether it's buildings or infrastructure or healthcare or community assets. If you take that long-term view, then you can accrue a better overall impact by investing more upfront. And that's, of course, I'm talking about capital, but that could be um, any other sort of investment, time, emotion, whatever right. it might be. And so early days, we were having to do cost-benefit analysis and we were having to explain to our clients whose money uh, was being spent in this this case the government uh, why it was better to invest uh, long term in these initiatives that would not only reduce the energy consumption but improve the quality of the space for the yeah. people that were um, using those spaces. So we had to do that from first principles. Uh, these days, you know, in the last decade or more, maybe even a couple of decades, we have seen the introduction of sustainability rating tools, which uh, have gathered uh, or garnered uh, greater recognition right. in industry. And so uh, we have green building councils around the world who are doing the work to 
convince people why it's important. And then, uh, so today we might not have to start from first principles yep. with all clients to help them to understand why you would invest in long-term thinking, yeah. social, environmental, yeah. economic, and cultural outcomes. Yeah. But we still do that from time to time. So yeah, absolutely, people would push back, and that was certainly one of the challenges of the job. But made it made it really really interesting. So, uh, and of course, the other aspect to uh, that is when we're talking about sustainability, uh, we're not talking about just uh, tangible outcomes, right. measurable outcomes. We're often talking about intangible outcomes, right. things that you can't measure. How do people feel about a space? Comfort can be measured in a particular way, but it's not an exact science. So there's a range of different tools that you need to use to help people to understand what it is that you're trying to achieve. So communication is really, really important. I sort of compare what is happening with AI now to what sustainability might have been back then. So now everybody's saying AI, artificial intelligence, you know, get this tool, chat GPT and all of that that you could use to write text or whatever the story is on that one. If you take that sort of revolution that you've seen in recent times, is it fair to say that you could compare that same thing that was happening back then with a conversation around sustainability? Given that when you talk about AI these days, not everybody's really happy to to jump on it or not everybody's excited to 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 talk about it. Some people think it's going to take over the world. Now, if you move that to sustainability back then, I, I, I would expect that people would have back then gone like, what is this in the first place of what use is it? Why do we want to change our designs? Why do we want, why do you want us to do things a certain way? So you may have had resistance from the client. You may have had resistance from your, your colleagues in the office or from the team as well, although they may have signed up to it. How did you deal with that? Yeah, well, it's in the AI is really interesting because it's, in, as with sustainability, they're both an, an opportunity and a threat, arguably an ex existential threat. And in fact, in our own business, we recognize that climate change and, and artificial intelligence are, are amongst those top threats that, that the world faces and that we need to consider as a business. So I think that comparison is, is, is interesting. I think that, you know, in the early 2000s, when I was working in sustainability, that was prior to a lot of, certainly prior to global consensus on things like pathways to net zero, commitments to net zero, UN sustainability goals, all those sorts of things. So in that way, it was an opportunity to find better ways of doing things. But it was very difficult to, I guess, in a way, convince people that if we didn't do things more sustainability, that the impacts would be dire, let's say. Right. And so, you know, that discourse or discussion around the importance of sustainability has been a bit of a slow burn. I mean, mm -hmm. prior to me um, starting my career and certainly into the, the 70s, you know, oil shocks, all those sorts of things, this had been around for a long time. It's, it's really only in the last perhaps five or 10 years, certainly in the 20 late 2010s, we, we've really understood that carbon and climate change are, are things that we need to act on. Of course, now AI is one of those things that could massively influence the way in which we do things. Time will tell what AI brings to us. Right. But I think it's fair to say, and the broad agreement on the science is that if we don't act on climate change, then things are going to get worse. So, yeah, challenge and opportunity. And I think that when it comes to convincing people what's important, one of the things you have to do is understand what's important to them. And so I like the quote from the beginning, and I'll paraphrase in, in a way, I guess. Mm. One of the things that's really important to me when it comes to the work that I do is trying to understand the why. Mm. Why is it that my client or their stakeholders or the community have this issue? Mm. And if I can understand the why, the big question of what's going on, then through that understanding, we can take better steps to help solve the problems that they're facing. So you always start with the why. And yeah, certainly when, when we're having conversations with clients as it was 20 years ago, or clients as it, as it is today, we have to start with those same questions. Why does this issue exist? What are they trying to achieve and how are we going to solve this problem together? So, so you're not really looking at the how you resolve the problem or how you solve the problem. Your, your, your starting point is always the why. So Absolutely. You know, why are we doing this? 
um, I'm a client. I have what two billion dollars or two million dollars. I want to build a skyscraper. You want to find out for me the why I'm doing it? Uh, absolutely. I, I think that if you go straight to the how, there's really often a trap right. in going straight to the how because you miss the opportunity to find out everything that's going on. Of course, a client might come to you with a solution to a problem. They might come to you with a solution, say, I want this. Mm -hmm. I think one of the other things you could look at is uh, wants and needs. Mm -hmm. What the client wants and what they need are often obviously related, but they can be different things. And if you don't understand what the client needs and you work off what they've told you they want, then you can quite easily go down a pathway that doesn't deliver what they need or what they want. Right. So it seems possibly oversimplistic, but I've always found that getting to the fundamentals of understanding why something is the way it is yep. really helps you to understand the needs of your client the needs of your clients' clients, and of course the broader community uh, and, and, and the space in which this thing you're going to deliver sits in, whether it be built infrastructure, horizontal or vertical infrastructure, uh, it's really imperative that you understand the why before you get to the how. So for, my, for myself, starting a career, and what I hear you saying is that it's equally important to ask myself why I want to get on that journey, why I want to take on this particular role, why I think I want to get into, say, sustainability, or I want to get into law, I want to get into medicine. Sometimes there's a disconnect between your passion, which is you're passionate about something that doesn't necessarily answer the why, right? So you're, you're passionate about, say, sustainability, but then you're, you're a banker. It doesn't mean there's no sustainable finance. Of course, there's the conversation around that. That's a different thing. But then how then do you connect that why within yourself with your passion? How, how have you achieved that? Because from what I hear from you, it appears you're already passionate enough about it. Something must have happened along the way that got you into that domain. How do you, how do you connect the two? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I think what you've asked goes to purpose. And, you know, with a career spanning more than 25, 26, 27 years, yeah. what I've learned is that I need to always challenge myself to achieve fulfillment. And in order to challenge myself, I need to understand what it is that motivates me or what my, what my purpose is. And so, you know, when you come out of university, uh, you, uh, if, if you're wanting to get into sustainability, you might not necessarily have an engineering degree. You could have an architecture degree, you could have a science degree. In fact, uh, many of the young colleagues that we have in our team uh, come for, from a broad range of backgrounds, geography, science, architecture. And what we find with those people who succeed in those roles, they have a passion and um, they can learn their practice. We can collaborate together and we can share our knowledge. And, and in fact, while I'm on that point, I think that there shouldn't be any intellectual property when it comes to sustainability. We should be, if we want to act on sustainability, sharing all of the knowledge so that everybody can act. So certainly there's, there's this aspect of when you leave university or whatever education you've you've done and you've joined a consultancy practice or the public sector whatever it is uh, find those things in your role that align with your passion i mean that seems obvious but if you can align your work with your passion then that's going to be more fulfilling and if that's uh, that's going to lead to a more positive experience and of course you're going to want to also invest more in yourself in your personal development and your professional development if the work that you're doing is aligned with your passion. Right. Now, sometimes, as we know yeah. from our own experience, <laughs> yeah. we need to fulfill roles and carry out tasks in our jobs that seem to be divergent from that passion. Right. But I think that if everything's consistent, sometimes you take the good with the bad, right? Yeah. Uh, that it's really important to invest in that foundational knowledge and experience and build that up and build that up and then find that next challenge. So I think that being, being mindful of what it is that drives you, having foresight to where you want to go, and making sure that those opportunities that you're taking through both your professional work and investment in yourself are aligned with getting you where you want where to be. Where you want to be. Mm, yeah. that's, that's a good one. So one of the things, you know, career growth involves you taking risk and sometimes stepping out of your comfort zone. There are stories of people that have walked away from their yeah, banking job and ended up being an entrepreneur somewhere else and probably built something 
there are people that have left their roles in say medicine and they've become podcasters and done pretty good at it as well. Now, can you share with us for any young person listening to this podcast at the moment, can you share with us a decision that you made that pushed you to, to grow and also proved rewarding? Did, did you have any setbacks in, in, in that process or did, can you just share that with us? If, if... Yeah, look, I, I guess I've been quite fortunate. I, I mean, I'm a little bit different by today's standard in the sense that I've only ever had three roles. I wow. worked for my first employer for 14 years. So only three companies. Only three saying. companies. So mm. I worked for my first first company for 13, 14 years, another company for a year, and, and my current employer I've been with for over 12 years. Now, why is that? Well, certainly for my first and last employers, they provided me with the opportunity to grow in a way that always challenged me. So others, uh, more frequently today, would work in a role for two or three years and then move to the next role and find that new opportunity and move to the next role. I was fortunate enough that in my in those companies that I worked for that I found those new challenges within those organizations. Now, after my first 18 months as, as an engineer, I, I looked back on the work that I'd done in building services, designing drainage systems and air conditioning systems and thought, what the heck am I doing? <laughs> because, you know, it's it can be pretty dry stuff. Yeah. And so I spent, I sort of diverged. Uh, this is this is one one point of divergence for me. I went out into uh, running telecommunications projects and I worked as a design manager, project manager, if you will, rolling out cell sites for a major telco company. Yeah. And I found that really, really rewarding, but also challenging. Right. One of the things I learned in that role, pretty, and I feel fortunate that I learned this, this early, is to lead people, you can't tell them what to do. Uh. And to lead people, you need to collaborate and work with them and encourage them and support them. And I found uh, that telling people how to do their job, when to do their job, micromanaging people didn't motivate them and didn't succeed in the outcome. So I took the time to reflect on that and say, you know, hey, why is this not, why are we, why is this harder than it should be? Why am I not having this great relationship with my colleagues that I would hope for? And so I took some time to reflect on that and I've taken that with me since. So you've got to work with people, not yeah. against people. Yeah. Another major step that I took uh, was after I've been working in New Zealand for 10 years, I really wanted to stretch myself and I moved to Australia. And I moved to Australia in the mid-2000s because really there was a lot of great work going on in the sunny continent in the area of uh, sustainable buildings off the yeah. back of the Green Building Council in particular, the work they had been doing. And so uh, moving to another country, moving to a different workplace, I thought that the working environment in Australia would be very similar to New Zealand. It's actually quite different. And um, meeting new people and living in a new country. I mean, that was that was a major step forward. So that came with its challenges. And, and I would say that taking that opportunity to work overseas in a different environment stretched me both professionally and personally and was really uh, formative to where I was when I came back to New Zealand. Right. Uh, built character, built resilience, uh, built flexibility, built understanding. And then, as I've just mentioned, uh, in the early 2010s, 2011-2012, I came back to New Zealand. And that was another start. I had I had worked in New Zealand for 14 years, but when I came back, people didn't know me. I hadn't been there for five or six Things years. I mean, different. I was known, but I didn't have a reputation. Right. And uh, that was hard because it took two years really to establish re-established myself in that market. It, it wasn't as easy as I thought it had been, but I stuck at it and we had some lows, but ultimately had some highs. And, and that was punctuated by a client that I'm now working with 10 years later, a uh, wow. really close working relationship yeah. built on respect and transparency and openness. So look, this you're always going to find lots of things that you learn in your professional life and yeah. those things that you learn in your personal life to reflect on those things yeah. and to learn from them rather than to ignore them, I think is, is really important for your personal growth. There, there are two things I want to ask just following what you said. The first one is you use the word reputation. Mm. Some argue reputation is everything when you, as, as a corporate person or irrespective of the kind of work you do. Your reputation is something you must protect at all cost. Would you agree? Yes. 
in in short, I think accountability is is really really important, and it's always been important to me to stick to my word. Some people say, you know, your word is your bond. Um, yeah, yes, sure, you could say that. But in Mott McDonald, we have something called our pride values: progress, respect, integrity, drive, and excellence. And the two things that resonate with me is respect and integrity. And I think it's really important that if we say we're going to do something, that we do it, do it, right, and then we follow it through. And if we can't follow it through, we have the conversation with our clients. Say, hey, look, this was our aspiration. This is what we wanted to do together. But for a variety of reasons, we might not be able to achieve those things. But here's some other pathways that we could take. So, yeah, uh, stick to your word, um, own it, be accountable. It's sometimes it's the putting good. You know, here's another uh, motherhood statement. It's the putting good that counts. Uh, right. So if, you, if you've got a problem, own it, you know. So reputation is built on integrity, uh-huh. doing what you say you're going to do, uh, following through. And, and I think if I reflect also, I've always had this sense of personal accountability and responsibility for the things that it is I'm going to do. So when I think about the example I gave earlier, the schools that I was working on, I was reflecting that the outcomes of the design of those buildings would reflect on my reputation and therefore it was important to me that I could do the best that I could mm-hmm. to deliver the outcomes that, that that would support what it was that we wanted to achieve. More recently, we've worked on a range of different projects where the outcome of accountability and commitment to delivering an outcome building reputation has actually also then translated into pride because when those projects work and they're successful for the client and they're successful for the stakeholders, then you can feel the warmth of achievement and satisfaction. Personally, I, I, right. I feel that it's um, something that uh, I take for my own purposes rather than than anything else. So, For uh, someone that's just started your career, I think one of the, the arguments that I hear many young people make is that sometimes when you take too much responsibility or you you build your career around, or I'm responsible for this, or I made that mistake, or the error is on me, over time, your the, the management or the team loses trust in you. Let's, let's imagine you're always owning up to your mistakes. Sure. So I made that design, I messed up. Or I did this, I messed up. I yeah. sent out that report, it was bad. I did this, it was wrong. And there are people going through that as we speak. Yeah. Now, some people have then sort of found a way to play the blame game where they go like, well, I must have dealt with that report, but then it was Peter or it was, it was uh, maybe some other person, Evans or someone else that, or Ian that worked on it in the final stages of the report, just to sort of insulate themselves. And you see a lot of that within the corporate world where people play that politics, mm. where they try to probably move the blame to someone else and not really take responsibility. Mm. What would you say to people like that? Because with that mindset, you also try to protect yourself so you don't get thrown under the bus yeah. all the time. This is a really good question. I think that I would reflect and say that being accountable and responsible does require an element of vulnerability, which is to the point that you're you're making is that if you're always owning up to your mistakes, you're, you're highlighting those mistakes and the people lose confidence. But I think it takes a lot of courage, particularly in our industry, where there's a lot of alpha personalities around the space who won't own up to their mistakes. And of course, that can have catastrophic right. outcomes, yeah. particularly for people who work in structural engineering or aerospace, you know. So I think that it does require courage and it does require confidence. It does require trust to be built. And I would also say that I would far rather somebody in the team that I work with own up to their mistake and then they and I can work through together to figure out what happened, where we are now, how we fix it and how we would avoid that again in the future than to try and hide it away. Because to solve the problem later is many, many times more difficult than to solve it at, at the time in which it's made. So... I that's the approach that I take with the colleagues and the people that I mentor is to have open, transparent communication, take a coaching approach, a growth approach. Right, okay, so what went wrong here? Not focus on the blame, but focus on what we could have done better. How could we improve that in future? Now, of course, if that individual keeps making the same mistake, mm-hmm. then you're going to start making different decisions and having different discussions about how you overcome those sorts of challenges. But 
broadly speaking, in my experience, and I've been fortunate to work with a great range of really talented people, people do learn and they own it and they fix it and they don't make those mistakes again. Well, they might make it twice and that's that's sure, we're all human. I've made plenty of mistakes in my own time. Right. So that's, that's the way I behave. Uh, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily been the way that my bosses in the past have supported me, but I guess I've learned from that as well. So I'm a, I would think that I'm a, a product of my experiences, oh, as we all are, right? You right. try and learn. Yeah. And if you ignore those things, then how do you grow? So mm. I think growth is really, really, really important to that learning from your mistakes piece. Good. So it's good learning from your mistakes. Okay. So we'll go on a, on a short commercial break. Thanks for staying with us. A million CVs will be back after this short break. Welcome back to the A Million CVs podcast. My guest in the studio today is Warner Branton, sustainability lead for McDonald Abnot region, and also the advisory sector lead for McDonald in New Zealand. So, Warner, before we, we went on the break there, you were talking about owning your mistakes and learning from it and not shying away from that, which, which I thought was really insightful. One, one interesting thing, and for many young people out there, is people like to switch careers at some point. So you, you, you did it with three companies, like you mentioned. Some people don't want to stay in one company for too long. So sometimes they do two years, they jump to another company and then off and on they go. Um, what you tend to see with that is that it allows easy promotion. So if you are say a junior engineer and you jump to another company, you easily become intermediate or you're a junior, maybe accountant, you jump to another profession, another company, you get an easy promotion and that helps you to get up the ladder pretty fast. Of course, then that means big bucks, uh, means more responsibility, and then you become more managerial without being overly technical. At the same time, the other argument is stay with a company like you did. So 25 years of your, your, your career you spent with three companies. Where do you think does that line? Is it useful to bounce around a bit because then that gets you up there? Of course, nobody's going to fire you from the company because you're overly incompetent. Otherwise, they wouldn't have interviewed in the first place. Where where's that where's that line between the two? Yeah, thanks, Delight. Look, I there's possibly no right answer here. Uh, I think that one of the interesting things when we look at CVs, or certainly when I look at CVs, and everybody's different, so take that with a grain of salt. Uh, when I'm looking for somebody to join our team, I'm looking for somebody who who's got a range of good experience and meaningful experience. Certainly when I see a CV and seen somebody bounce around different organizations, particularly uh, over a short period of time, very similar organizations from role to role to role without establishing themselves. I, I would ask a question about what their commitment is to the organization, our organization that, that they might be looking to join, or to the role that it is they're trying to fill and their competency right. there. But I think that if I kind of reinterpret your question slightly differently and, and maybe go back to a point that I made earlier, I think it's pretty important that in whatever role that you have got, and if you have an aspiration to grow and succeed and climb the ladder, then it's really important to make sure that you use the time that you have in each one of those roles to build your competency and your experience. So certainly uh, if you're a new graduate, then the first couple of years of your degree, the first couple of years of your role uh, are really about trying to establish what it is to be a consultant, let's say, in, in, in the industry in which we work. And that forms the foundation for the next step that you're going to take. Now, whether you work within your organization and change roles within the organization, or if you transfer within the organization, or whether you leave the organization and find the opportunity to go somewhere else. And so from my part of the world in New Zealand, they call that the overseas experience. People will work for one or two years, and then they'll travel overseas to get some experience and they might come home. I think just to make sure earlier in your career that you're getting that diversity of experience that helps you build a foundation Mm -hmm. but also provides you with those experiences to help you decide what it is that's important to you. Right. And it would be okay that after a couple of years, you say, hey, look, you know, I've really enjoyed doing A, but really my next step will be B. Right. Now, of course, if you're going to do a complete switch, then you probably have to accept that if you're going into a new career that you might might need to start again. I would also say that if we see people coming to join us from 
a role where they've bounced around a rebit, they've sort of started in, in this role and moved to that role and moved to another role, I'd be wanting to ask them some pretty important questions about what it is they want to see for their future. What is their commitment? Perhaps unfairly, or perhaps it is fair, sometimes I ask people what their five-year plan is because that helps me to understand an insight as to what drives that person and what they want to achieve. And and sometimes people say to me, hey, look, I'm here, I'm traveling around the world and I want to work here for 12 months. I would rather have that conversation with a prospective employer and understand what their motivation is and see how we can work together than for them to make some other sort of commitment and after 12 12 months leave. Now, there will be people who do that, but I think it's important to me if I go back to the values, pride Pride, values, uh, respect and integrity, that obviously we are investing in the individual and the individual is investing in us as well. If we're going to be effective in doing that, then let's do that together. So coming back to the question, look, I think that work through and build really strong experience that will take you to the next step and continue to grow. And life will throw its challenges up. You may decide to travel. You may decide to settle down and have a family. You may have some other major life event that that comes into play. Now, sometimes those major life events can be positive and sometimes they can be negative. Don't be afraid to make sure that you're focusing on the right things and then come back to what's important to you later. Uh, Mm. It's never too late to give up. So, yeah, look, it's, it's each individual is going to be different, but as an employer, it will be clear to me when I'm interviewing somebody and when I look at their experience, whether somebody is purposeful about what it is they want to achieve or if they're just knocking around and and don't really have any idea. Could it it also not be that people have got a bit of an inquisitive mind? Yeah. So they try, say they work with Mark McDonald two years, and they're like, okay, no, I think, I think I've done it. It's the same thing. I'm beginning to see the same designs every day. Sure. So let me go work with another company. Try that. Okay, I think I've done enough. And there are people like that that like to bounce around. Yeah. But then when they get into the organization, you can clearly tell they know what they are doing. Yes. And sometimes um, you get to carry the experience from the previous company. Yes into the new company. Yeah. The, the, the gray area there is some people argue staying with a company for say 15, 20 years is because people are scared to try something new. That's one argument some other yeah. people make. That's another school of thought. Whereas there's that counter argument also, which is if you bounce around too much, then it means that you're probably not sure of yourself and you're not really willing to learn. Yeah. Is, is that is that where your mind sits in, in terms of that? Well, actually, I think I can actually share that for those people who purposefully change roles regularly, yeah you can see what they're doing and you can understand them. So I can think in my mind's eye of certainly two, but probably three people that I've met in the last 10 years who purposely, purposefully moved between um, two or three or maybe even four jobs in a period of six to eight years. Right. And I could see that those individuals had a plan which they either spoke about or if unspoken was implicit, that they were looking to achieve an outcome. And I would say for those individuals, perhaps they were entrepreneurial, perhaps they were inquisitive, but they were focused and they had a big picture and they had a plan. And so you can tell the difference between somebody who's moved between roles and who has a plan Mm. and somebody who has moved between roles and who hasn't had a plan. Just bouncing around. And so, you know, this is the question there between, I I think, I think if we come back to that notion of competency, if somebody's purposefully being in a role and they're building competency, and whether that be competency technically, uh, leading people, uh, engaging with stakeholders, engaging with clients, then you will see that. And that will come through not only in their personality and the way in which they do things, it'll come through in their experience and it will come through in, in what they bring to the new role. I would say that that is probably rarer than you might expect. Okay. So I I do envy, not to say I haven't had a plan, I've, I've, I've had plans, but I do envy some of those people that I've come across who've had very clear plans for their career. Yeah. And you kind of sit back and go, oh, whoa, 
hey, kudos to that person. They mm -hmm. really knew what it was that they were doing. They knew where they wanted to be going. They knew what they wanted to achieve. Mm -hmm. And some people might call that climbing, but um, I, I haven't experienced that in a, in a negative way. I've only ever experienced that as being positive mm -hmm. for the individual and certainly being part of the team. You, I've never had a bad experience with somebody saying, oh, okay, I'm going to go on and do that other thing. In fact, as a leader of people, I encourage my team to follow their passion. And if they can't follow their passion, let's talk about it. Right. And if we can find a different pathway within the business, then let's do that. But if we can't find the pathway within the business, then I will support them to make a decision outside the business to get them somewhere that does follow their passion. And it might be professional, it might be personal, who knows. Right. But I think it's really important to me that each of us enjoys what it is that it is we do, that we uh, make the most of what it is that we achieve and we get satisfaction out of that. Yeah, interesting. That's, that's, that's a good good way of looking at it. And now let's look at you as a leader in your field. I mean, being with mods and, and the kind of work you do, what key principles or values do you uphold to guide your team? What's the bracket? Yeah. Uh, well, I've, I've, I've mentioned uh, respect and integrity a lot. I try to maintain open communication with the team. Of course, as, as a leader, you're privy to a range of information at different levels within a business that you can and can't share. But um, I've observed in different roles in different organizations, you know, we've all, all been in, in, in a situation where we've been the last person to know, perhaps, yeah. or some piece of information has been presented to us that we didn't know about, but it's had a major impact on what it is that we do or the way in which we operate in our business. And and to the extent that I can, I really try to make sure that I'm keeping people informed mm -hmm. as to what's going on and to also engage with people to help them contribute to or even be part of the decision-making process. Because while ultimately at the end of the day, as a leader of, you know, as an advisory sector leader, I need, might need to make some calls, I think it's important that I can engage with my colleagues and, and other people within their team to find what's important to them and to help them understand the direction that business is taking and the strategy that we're having. So at the end of the day, you have to make decisions. But if you communicate and you consult, then you can make informed decisions and you're not going to always make everybody happy. Right. But at least you've given everybody the opportunity to share their thoughts and share their opinion and be heard. And then, then you can advise. Right. Sometimes you have to make some hard decisions and that's never easy. And, and certainly I've been in a position where there's you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. There's no good decision yeah, here, yeah. and you have to make the best of the bad decisions that you can that you have to make. Making the best S of the bad decisions. The make the best of the bad decisions. That's interesting. Yeah. So leadership, yeah. So transparency, open communication. Um, I like to build trust, which goes back to that. That uh, I think empathy is important. Understanding is important. Connection. Yeah, um, leadership is a complex thing. In fact, I would say the most complex part of my role over the last 26, 27 years has been leadership yeah. of people. And it's the thing that I'm constantly challenged by. Certainly, I'm not an expert technically in my field. I know a lot and and I've that's come through experience. Yeah. Um, sorry, I don't want that to sound yeah. unduly... Uh, Anyway, the point I'm trying to make here is that understanding people, mm. uh, working with people, whether they be clients or colleagues, is hugely important. Yeah. And communication in that process is, is hugely important. Right. Mm. So on the back of that, what, what, what do you constantly do then to challenge your underlying beliefs and assumptions? Because you hear things about reputation, integrity, accountability, communication. So it appears you have a set of pillars that you're, you're dealing with and, and that, that's your bracket, as I call it. What do you do sometimes to, to challenge that or what, what would present itself enough to make you challenge that? So am I just doing the same thing? What's stopping me from doing the same thing over and over again? Yeah. And how am I learning and how am I growing? Well, I, I think there's a couple of different layers to that. One is to challenge yourself personally and to have a plan and to think forward to what I want to achieve over, over a period of time, whether it be one year, yeah. two years, five years. And so there's, there's that aspect of it. I think also to remind myself that there are other voices in the room and there are other right. people who often are, are more informed 
better subject than I am. And that I need to reach out to those people, those subject matter experts to inform me. I've always been a big advocate for continual learning and I'm not afraid to put my hand up and say, hey, look, I don't understand the subject. I know you do. I think you should lead this piece or how can we work together to deliver that outcome? And that requires, again, some vulnerability, um, Mm -hmm. some honesty, and not everybody's comfortable with that. In an alpha personality type environment, people like to be right all the time, right? And they don't like to admit their mistakes. Well, that's fine. That's cool. But that's probably not the way I I operate. So to, to put it simply, you can say that you should be vulnerable on your career journey. Perhaps honest. Yeah, be honest with yourself and honest with other people. So accept that you're not perfect. In a way, possibly accept your areas of expertise and where you can share that knowledge and and drive forward. But no one person can be an expert on everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we achieve things better as consultants, uh, as society, I guess, when we work together. Right. And you get a better outcome through collaboration and the culmination of the collective, right. uh, I think. Now, there's this interesting one that we, we've we've sort of asked all the leaders in businesses that we've spoken to, which is a conversation around competence versus leadership. Yeah. So sometimes you can find people at the top or people that are climbing up the ladder and it ties back to that two-year bounce around or 14-year stay somewhere, try and be competent in whatever you do sort of conversation. There are people that get up the ladder just because they can communicate quite well, they're quite confident, so then they exhibit that, that leadership. I think there's, there's a common American saying, how did the tortoise get to the head of the, the top of the pool? Sort mm. of, no one knows how it got there, but mm. you can clearly tell it's not supposed to be there. Mm. Now, is it a conversation around someone being competent, but then sometimes do not know how to exhibit proper leadership? Mm. And then there are people that are equally good leaders, but do not possess that, that, that competence. How do you marry the two? Is it the basic instruction of stay through the process, build all the competence until you get up there? Or is it also around the fact that some people are just not born leaders? Mm. So they get up there, they are competent enough, but then they mm. do not have that leadership mm. skill to be able to manage a team or deal with people. What's what's your take on that? Yeah, look, it's one of those things that's really interesting and it's understanding human nature and people and individuals. Everybody's different. And one of the things that I think it's important to do as leaders is to understand the individual and to get to know them and understand how it is that they work and how they do things. The way in which they work, uh, whether they're learned by doing or learned by reading or learned by seeing. So understand what makes people tick is really, really important. And, and recognizing that sometimes people are just technical people. And right. and look, let's be honest, a lot of people who come into our industry from engineering have a technical background. We don't, well, certainly when I was uh, studying, we learned engineering management, but not in a context that enabled us to practice in a way which we would be competent as, right. as, as a leader of people. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you're not a natural leader and you want to do that, then there's lots of really great resources and conversations you can have with your line manager and training that you can do. Yeah. There are obviously natural born leaders, people which will have a style which will fit well with the work they do and the people that they lead. Then, of course, you do have people who are very good leaders that are, perhaps are not as technically proficient as as, as you would like Should them be. to yep. be. And then there's a spectrum of everything in between. <laughs> so there are very few people, I do know some though, who who are really strong leaders, both of people and technical. Right. There's plenty of people who are real strong technical leaders, yeah. and there are plenty of people who are strong people leaders. Right. Uh, to bring those two things together is a great thing. But when I'm working with my colleagues and when I'm having one-on-one conversations with them and when we're talking about their career growth, I like to you know, discuss the opportunities for both their technical growth uh, and their, their leadership, people yeah. leadership growth. Right. And the other thing I would say is, you know, I've over my career talked to a lot of people, young engineers who want to become project managers yeah. because they see project manager as a step 
on a pathway to success. What I would say about good project managers that I've observed is they have strong fundamental subject matter knowledge that underpins their ability to lead projects. Right. Project managers who don't have a strong, and they don't have to be good at everything, but as long as they've got sound uh, fundamental knowledge that underpins what it is they're leading, then they're going to be far more effective than, than a person who wants to come in and manage the process. And I'm not talking about professional project managers yeah. solely. I'm talking about anybody who leads projects. Yeah. That's why I think it's important that when you come into engineering consultancy or any type of consultancy that you develop early in your career, that competency right. and even a niche. I think a niche is important because a niche provides you with that area of focus that might talk to your passion, mm -hmm. but it also provides you a point of difference and an area in which you can provide specific value or specialist value to your clients. If you build that up and at the same time, learn what it is to lead projects, projects. and lead people and right. figure out what motivates people, then I think those things go hand in hand. Yeah. So yes, you will have people on the one yeah. and the other, the, the two ends of the spectrum, Yeah, but you can build everything in, in the middle as well. Well, pretty interesting. I mean, I, I could go on and on and on. I'm just going to step away from these questions and just um, ask you this. What's your failure CV, Warner Brunton? <laughs> what's, what's my failure CV? Yes. What, what are the things that I've failed at That's right. uh, in the past that I might share? That, yes, on your career journey. I, I mean, if, if you don't want to share, that's fine. But no, I mean, no, but no, no. Um, I, look, I think it's a really good question. Um, because self-reflection and things that you learn from can be quite interesting. I, I mentioned earlier about leading people earlier in my career. It was a failure on my behalf earlier in my career to think that managing people was telling them what to do. And, and forgive me if I'm repeating myself from earlier in the podcast, but you don't motivate people by telling them what to do. Right. Right? Yeah. You need to understand everybody's motivation. And if you're delivering a project, you need to build the team. You need to get everybody moving the same direction. You need to understand the pushes and the pulls and, right. and, and the interrelationships and, and what works and what doesn't. And getting people to work with you is far more effective than telling them what to do. Right. Because when you tell people what to do, they shut down. Yeah. And I'm sad that I had to learn that the hard um, way. because the hard way because it was never my intention. I didn't want to be that person, but I learned from that. And sometimes I may still make that mistake, but uh, I hope that in my career to date, and more recently in the last twenty years, um, that I've have not made that mistake as much. Right. Yeah. That's that's really good. Now the last question I'm just going to ask you is, given what you know now and everything you've said in between twenty five to twenty seven years of your of your career and doing all these interesting projects, would you do anything different on your career journey? Regret. Regret's not a great thing to have, and we all have regrets, things that we might have done differently. Of course, we did them, and we learned from those experiences, and, and we became the people we are from making mistakes or having those positive experiences. So I feel, I would say that I feel very fortunate to have got to where I am today. And I feel very fortunate to have worked with a range of really tremendous people across my career. So from that perspective, I wouldn't change anything. You know, could I have done something different here or there? I'm, I'm sure I could have, but here we are today. Uh, I can't change the past, but I can change the future. Right. And so, yeah, you can always do something different. You can always push yourself harder and, and um, you know, that's something to reflect on for the future for for me and, and for those people who are listening today. What what could I do? Where, where will I be in a year or two years? And will that live up to my aspirations or expectations? Don't know. We'll see. Well, Brenton, thank you very much. My pleasure. And there you have it, folks. Another riveting episode brought to you by the creative minds at Brown Bear Studios in the vibrant heart of Brighton. But before we end today's episode, we want to express our heartfelt gratitude to you for joining us today. If you found our podcast as motivating as we did, don't forget to subscribe or share it with others who are looking for career advice. 
Visit www.amilloncvs.com and click on our pledge to learn more about how we are utilizing this podcast to shape lives. We are continuously on the hunt for the next extraordinary person whose story can inspire others. If you have someone in mind, please contact us at contactusatamilloncvs.com or send us an email with a specific question you'd want us to ask our guests. Stay tuned for more incredible career journeys. Talk to you soon.